The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. How are you scheduling fun into your week? Where is it on your calendar? Hey, everyone. From LinkedIn News, this is In the Arena, a podcast exploring human potential. I'm Leah Smart, and every week you'll find me right here in conversation with bright minds and brave hearts, learning how we can improve our lives and our world by transforming ourselves. In 2019, this week's guest, Lori Gottlieb, released her book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, a therapist, her therapist, and our lives revealed. And since then, it sold over 1 million copies and was named the best book of the year by institutions like Harvard Business School, along with publications like Time Magazine, Oprah Magazine, and USA Today. Lori is a psychotherapist who used her book to let us all peek behind the curtain of therapy, both her own sessions and five of her clients. My big intention is just to make emotional health accessible to people. Mm -hmm. And so... All of my work does that. It takes therapy out of the therapy room. I was totally blown away by how relatable, honest, and truly hilarious this book was. But that same year in 2019, according to the CDC, less than 20% of adults had received mental health treatment in the last 12 months. However, starting in 2020, therapists reported a spike in referrals, suggesting that people seeking support was on the rise. Still, according to a 2020 study, Almost half of Americans also felt that going to therapy was a sign of weakness, many believing their problems simply weren't big enough. So while people seeking therapy is on the rise, we still have work to do on the stigma and, frankly, understanding the upside of therapy. And Lori is doing just that by talking about how people who think their problems don't matter enough can massively benefit from talking to someone. Here's Lori. There are so many misconceptions about what therapy is and why people would go to therapy. And I think that the reason there has been so much stigma is because, first of all, people think that if you go to therapy, something is wrong with you. And that's that's such an interesting dichotomy when you think about how we think about our physical health versus how we think about our emotional health. So we have this hierarchy of pain in our minds around emotional health, that if it doesn't meet threshold, then you don't go to therapy. And we don't do that with our physical health. So if you fall down and you break your arm, you don't say, well, I'm not going to go get a cast or get treated for this or get an x-ray because it's not as bad as I don't have a terminal illness, let's say, or you know whatever your hierarchy looks like. We go and we get treated. We also go preventatively. We go every year for a checkup to make sure to see, okay, what am I doing and how can I proactively take care of my health, right? We do that with our physical health. We exercise, we eat well, we talk to our doctor about, you know, what can I do to maintain my health? And with our emotional health, we feel like unless you're having the equivalent of an emotional heart attack, then you don't do anything for your emotional health. You just power through. So people will be like, yeah, maybe I'm kind of sad or I'm kind of anxious or I'm having trouble sleeping or I'm having difficulty in this relationship or I can't figure out my professional life or whatever it is. They think, yeah, but I have a roof over my head and food on the table. So, you know, it's not that bad. 
and then it just gets worse, or it kind of stays the same, but you're not really fully present. You're not really fully there. You're kind of just going through the motions. And so I think that people don't understand that there are many, many kinds of reasons that people will come to therapy. And I always say that if you're asking yourself if you should go to therapy, that's your inner therapist saying, yes, you should go to therapy. See what it's about. At least go Mm -hmm. see what it's about. And you bring up such an important topic, which is comparative suffering, which I think we're all somehow underneath all of our pain and suffering. We're trained to compare to something else that's much, much worse. And then by doing that, we essentially X out our own suffering and say, well, then I'm I'm not suffering at all. And so I'm like, where did this come from that we have this idea that we have to be literally at the worst possible point in the world to be able to go to therapy? And I I think it's also because of the stigma of what mental health has meant up until, you know, 40 years ago. Well, I think we're finally realizing that there is a strong connection between the mind and the body also. So sometimes it was more acceptable to say, oh, but I I have stomach problems versus, oh, let's look at the root of that problem. You are suffering from severe anxiety right? Or you have unprocessed trauma or, you know, whatever is going on. But also you can have a really good life and also be curious about yourself. So you don't have to have experienced um, intense suffering. Everybody suffers in some way or another. You can't go through life as a human and not have gone through some kind of struggle. So we all struggle in different ways, but we minimize our struggles if we feel like everything else looks too good. (laughs) And I think that, that what some people you know, discover when they go to therapy is that there are patterns or ways of being or ways of navigating through the world that are holding them back, that are affecting their relationships, that are affecting the ways that they can love and be loved, that are affecting the ways that they move through their careers or or their desires or their dreams or their ambitions. And so I think that it's really important that we understand that therapy is a process of of having someone hold up a mirror to you and help you to see something about yourself that maybe you haven't been able to see so that you can make those changes in your life. And that's very different from what our friends do. So I talk in, maybe you should talk to someone about the difference between idiot compassion and wise compassion. Idiot compassion is what our friends do. We say, you know, this happened with my boss or my coworker or my partner or my whatever. And we say, yeah, you're right, they're wrong. How dare they? Right. Because we think we're being supportive. Right. And it's kind of like if you listen to your friends over time, you might think in your head, but not say to them, you know, if a fight breaks out in every bar you're going to, maybe it's you. So maybe this has happened in several jobs or in several relationships or, or this keeps happening, you know, it, it, with this person all the time. That's idiot compassion. Wise compassion is what a therapist will do, which is we help you to see your role in what's going on. And, you know, the word compassion is there because it's done with compassion, but we can't really help you if you are coming in with a faulty narrative. And I say that because we're all unreliable narrators, meaning we all are telling a story through our subjective lens. And there are lots of other parts of the story that we're minimizing or we're exaggerating or we're leaving in, we're leaving out because we feel shame or we want to look good or whatever it is. And that's outside of our awareness. We're not necessarily doing that on purpose. And a therapist can help you fill in those other threads in the story so that you now have the freedom to make choices Hmm. that you didn't have before because you didn't even understand the fullness of the situation. You know, there is someone that I know who recently said to me, 
I want to be on purpose. And it just stuck with me. I was touched by it, but I was already really deep in the self-discovery space, self-exploration and, and taking action to you know improve myself. But, you know, I will say there have been times where, you know, I think about my own therapy sessions where I probably danced around a lot of topics, partially because I didn't want to change. Uh, probably somewhere conscious and unconscious, I feared change. Um, and it makes me think of people who say, you know, that quote, like, that's just how I am. Um, it, all of that feels like it's wrapped up in maybe the reason that people don't necessarily approach therapy or self-discovery is because there's some knowledge in us that if we change, life will change, and then we don't want that. Have you seen yeah. – I'm sure you've seen that. Change is really hard because with change comes loss, even really positive change. Mm -hmm. So you think, this would be a really healthy change for me. This would make my life better, whether it's a new job or getting out of a bad relationship or getting into a good relationship or mm -hmm. getting a promotion or whatever. Whatever it is. And we resist change because with change, we lose the familiar. Mm -hmm. And that's very scary because humans don't do well with uncertainty as a rule. And so if we have to give up the thing we have, we're going to something that we don't yet know what it will feel like. And that makes us really nervous. And people don't realize, too, there's a chapter in the book called How Humans Change, and it goes through the stages of change. So this is why New Year's resolutions often fail, because people think, this is the change I want to make. On this day, I'm going to make the change. And then that's what, you know, it's like Nike, just do it. Yeah. It doesn't always work that way. And often it doesn't last because the stages of change are such that you start with pre-contemplation where you don't even know that you're thinking about making a change. Then there's contemplation where you know that you want to make the change. You're thinking about it, but you're not ready to do anything about it yet. Then there's preparation where you're saying, okay, what steps do I need to take to prepare for this change? If I'm going to move, if I'm going to look for a new job, if I'm going to stop using the substance, you know, whatever it is, what kind of support will I need? What are the steps I need to take? And then there's action where you actually make the change. And people mistakenly think that that's the last stage. It's not. The next stage, and that's the most important stage, is maintenance. How do you maintain the change? And the biggest misconception people have about maintenance is that they think that maintenance means you are just sailing along maintaining the change. <laughs> no, you're going to slip back like shoots and ladders. You're going to slip back a lot because it's not, it's not your new normal yet. You have, again, we cling to the familiar. So you have to wait until it feels like your new normal. It feels natural to you. And it's going to feel very uncomfortable. Like you've been plopped into this new land. You don't know your, the mores, the language, the directions, the culture, um, you know, your way around. You're just lost. And so how do you find your way around? How do you acclimate in this new land? And so with maintenance, people often think, oh, I slipped up once, so I failed, so I'll just keep doing this destructive behavior or this behavior that's not really serving me. I'll just stay in this job. Mm -hmm. I'll just, you know, whatever it is. Oh, I called this person at 3 a.m. that I wasn't supposed to, so therefore I'm never going to be in a healthy relationship. Mm -hmm. Or, oh, look what I ate today, so forget me trying to be healthy, right? And so instead what we need is a lot of self-compassion. What people tend to do is they self-flagellate. And self-flagellation might work a little bit in the short term because you're like bullying yourself into it, but it doesn't work in the long term because what happens is you start to feel shame. And every time you slip up, you're going to feel more and more shame and you're going to give up. And so with self-compassion, it doesn't mean you lack accountability. It means that it helps you to be accountable. Mm -hmm. If your kid came to you and said, oh, look, I messed up in this way. If you scream at them, 
are they going to be more apt to say, oh, wait, let me try to get back on track here? Or are they going to be terrified of ever slipping up? So if you can be compassionate, say, this is what I expect of you. Here are the expectations. Let's talk about what happened. Let's talk about what kind of support you need so that you can um, look at this next time when you feel like you might slip back. And let's see what you need to do differently. Well, that's going to really help. So it's self-compassion with accountability. You're reminding me, uh, you know, as you talk about self-flagellation, it makes me think of the character in your story, John, who is kind of like on the opposite end of the spectrum of self-flagellation. In his world, everyone's an idiot. So blame yeah. is is really the the main kind of character in his story. Is that how it goes? Are we either self-flagellating or blaming? Or are we, you know, as hard on ourselves as we are on other people? So John in the book is this very successful person who works in the entertainment business. And he thinks that everyone around him is an idiot and that he's smarter than everybody else. And he knows better. Now he's wildly successful. So you can see sort of why he thinks that. And, you know, but at the same time, um, he's, what he's doing is he's saying the unspeakable with his behavior. So there's something that he's acting out. He can't let people get too close to him. It's very threatening for him. And he doesn't realize this. And I think that so often when we look at people's behavior, whether that's in our personal relationships or at work, I think that we need to remember that they're acting this way because they're telling us something with their behavior that they can't communicate directly with their words. And maybe that will help us to have a little more compassion for them. It doesn't make it necessarily easier to deal with their behavior. But I think when you have a little bit more compassion, you don't take it so personally. You realize it's much more about them and something they're dealing with and struggling with than it is about you. And maybe that helps you to be less reactive to it. Hmm. And then do you believe, you know, as, as you're listening to John, as, as I listen, as someone who's done a lot of this work and I do have a lot of compassion and empathy for others, um, I truly can say I probably have empathy for for everyone that's here right now on this planet. Even even if their behaviors are atrocious, there's something in that story that, as you know, Brene Brown says, will bring you to your knees. And you know, lots of people have shared how stories can can shift our perceptions of people. Do you believe that people are doing the best they can despite their behavior? And and like, how do we expand that beyond the people we love, or maybe very specifically to the people we love? I feel like there's like a middle ground between our family right? And the lack of compassion we may have for them and blame we hold. And then people in the world who are highlighted in the news, who are doing things that are awful, that we just can't justify. And both of those ends of the spectrum cause us to separate from other people. So how do we rectify that? Do we? Is it worth it? Well, I think that the reason that John in the book starts off being the most unlikable at the beginning and um, at the end, most people will say John was their favorite person in the book. And I think it's because they saw his humanity. They saw what was underneath it all and they understood that. And yes, it brought people to their knees. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that um, it's really important for us to remember that when people act in a certain way, what they're doing is they're projecting their pain out into the world. So they have so much pain internally that they don't know what to do with it. And then they project it out in the world. That's not to condone what they're doing, but it's helping us to kind of have a framework to understand how could somebody act in that way, whether it's, you know, something on a personal level or someone at work or something that goes on in the world that we see these tragedies every day. Mm -hmm. 
You know, in in my own experience, I think I went to therapy before a lot of people in my life went to therapy. And as I started to go to therapy, as I started becoming a coach, I started digging much deeper into my own empathy. And then naturally, as you probably experienced too, it's like everyone wants to talk to you about their problem, right? Because they can see how much you can hold. I think there's also um, a challenge with therapy where in certain cultures, and I think for many people, they say, I don't want to share my personal private life with someone who doesn't know me. And so their friends and their family become their therapists in a way. How do you work through that? Like, is there a way to, you know, support people with boundaries when you think about how you act as a good friend, um, but not take it on yourself? I think that one of the things that happens in therapy is that people have this misunderstanding that, um, and I think in certain cultures, the reason they don't want people to go to therapy is that they feel like the therapist is going to turn that person against the family and the culture. And what therapy is meant to do is to help you have better relationships with your family, better relationships with the people who are important to you, better relationships with your culture, right? How do you exist inside the culture, but also how can you live your life in the way that feels right for you? And how do you balance those two things? And I think that, you know, the pain that people tend to feel comes from loneliness. It comes from feeling like an outsider, feeling like you don't belong. And I think that that can just be so painful on so many levels. If you don't belong, you don't fit in. Um, And so I think that one of the things that we try to do in therapy is to help people to understand how they can have a better relationship with the people who are important to them. You know, we have this saying, before diagnosing someone with depression, make sure they aren't surrounded by assholes, right? And so, you know, sometimes people are surrounded by people who are really destructive, and sometimes they're not. If they are surrounded by people who are really destructive, first of all, are you choosing to have these people in your life? You know, are these people who who you're just you're just attracting those people when you go out in the world? And what's that about? But if there are people that that you want to be in relationship with, like family members, but you want to learn how to do it differently, therapy is a great way to do that. It doesn't mean that you're you're trying to get the other person to change. It's that you are going to change. You are going to change how you respond to those people. And we always say you can't change other people. But one thing that I found as a therapist is that you can influence other people by changing yourself. So people do a dance with each other, right? And so if you change your dance steps, the other person is either going to have to change their dance steps or they're going to fall down on the dance floor or they're going to leave the dance floor. That's fine too. You changing your dance steps is going to force the other person to change something because they can't keep doing that dance with you anymore because you're not dancing with them in the same way. So when they say that thing that triggers you, can you respond differently? And every single time, consistently. People think that boundaries are, I'm telling you how to act around me. So my boundary is, I don't want you doing that anymore. Or I want you to say this next time. Or I want you to do this. The boundary is, you make a request. But the boundary is with yourself. And if that person doesn't honor my request, what is my boundary? Is my boundary that if they do that, I'm going to say, hey, I can't talk to you right now. Let's talk later because, you know, I I asked you not to say that thing. Let's talk another time. Is the boundary that you're not going to, you know, you're not going to do the dance with them? Is the boundary that you're going to spend less time with them? Is the boundary that you're going to take a walk to sort of calm yourself down? Is the boundary that maybe you're going to um, 
you know, make sure that you, that you reinforce the request at the time that it happens. There are so many different ways that you can hold a boundary with yourself, but often people abandon themselves in that moment and then they just start reacting back. Mm-hmm. I wonder how many, um, <clears throat> how many people may try to practice that and give up on it because they look at it as either I'm keeping my relationship or I'm putting up a boundary. I, I've definitely experienced that. And my relationship is so important. I don't know who I am or what I would be without this specific, you know, family member, friend, partner that I I simply do betray myself for the sake of the relationship. And what I've found in that experience is like resentment just builds and builds and builds. Because once you start going on this path of self-discovery, self-exploration, and personal growth, it's really hard to like unsee what you've seen and undo what you've learned. Well, a, a boundary can also look like this, that if I go to this person with something that feels really important to me and kind of tender to me, like I have this great idea about the next thing I want to do in my career but every time I go to them, they shoot it down. And then I feel bad about myself and then I never pursue it. Or, um, you know, I'm really excited about this thing, but I know they're going to somehow make me feel bad about it. That's not the person to go to, but you can still be in a relationship with them. So say that that's your parent. You can talk about different things with your parent. Does it, does it feel sad? Do you have some grieving to do that you can't share these kinds of things with your parent? Yes. And so that's the grief work that you have to do. But you can also find other things that feel good around your parent. Like, I really like the holidays with my family. Or I really like sometimes chatting about other relatives with my mom. Mm-hmm. Or I like going shopping with my mom. That's fun. Or whatever it is. But you have to have a boundary with yourself. I am not going to bring things that I hold very dear to me to the person who is going to make me feel bad about that. Like, mm-hmm. why would you keep going back and back and back to the dry well when you know every time there will be no water there? In fact, not only will there be no water, but there might even be like a snake like that comes coal. out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it makes me think of the fact that, like, I've been guilty of this, and I think a lot of us are, that people are supposed to be everything to us, that everyone in our lives is supposed to be able to hold all of us, and if not then it's either kind of all in or all out and there's something wrong with them when in reality what you're saying is like, know your people. I would say choose your audience well Mm -hmm. for everything and know who your audience is for the various kinds of things that you're going to bring to them. And that way you have different people that, you know, really enrich your life in different ways. And that's okay. They don't have to be there for every single thing in every single way. And I say that especially with family. We're off to a quick break. I love Lori's simple point that therapy is truly about how to have better relationships with the people in your life. And the main beneficiary is you. I think too many people feel like therapy or coaching is about waiting until things are terrible to seek help. But what if we worked out seeking help to buffer us through the highs and lows instead? As they say, you don't have to be sick to get better. When we get back, Lori shares what actually happens in therapy, why people who feel like they're just normal people with normal problems can benefit from it. I feel like I'm pretty normal. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days. 
all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back with therapist, best-selling author, and Atlantic Dear Therapist columnist, Lori Gottlieb. I loved your book because you also shared your own story, right? And so we rarely hear about the human side of our therapists um, or our coaches or those that that mentor us. What's the most meaningful thing that you learned and have learned in going through therapy for yourself? Well, I say at the beginning of the book that I really, you know, I think that my greatest credential is that I'm a card-carrying member of the human race, that I didn't want to just be the expert up on high. I wanted to show that we're all more the same than we are different. And I think that what I learned through the process of, of going to therapy and after you've been a therapist and you're doing this all the time and then you go back to therapy, um, it was a really different experience. And I think it, it was really eye-opening in terms of it made me such a better therapist. It made me really understand the experience in a completely different way than I had in my earlier experiences going to therapy. One of the things that I think I realized, and I think so many people, the reason I think that the book has resonated so widely is because it just shows that we're all so similar. We think that we're so, like our thing is so personal to us, but all of our struggles are so universal when you break them down to, you know, kind of the core issue. And I think really it's all this stuff about belonging and how can I love and be loved and and how do how can I be seen and heard and understood and how do I connect with people and what is my purpose? What is what is meaningful to me? What is my purpose on this earth? What is my intention when I wake up every day? Why am I here? All those kind of existential questions that kind of like we push down in the daily rush of things that we need to do but they're always percolating under the surface and they just come out in different ways. And so I think we're all asking those questions. And if we don't really have the space to explore them and it doesn't have to be in therapy, but I think that we do need to think about them or else we're going to kind of act out all of our angst about them in different ways. You know, I think that so many people think that you're going to come to therapy and you're going to talk about your childhood ad nauseum and you're never going to leave. And that's the model of therapy. <laughs> that's not at all what therapy is. It's really about the present and the future. So yes, yeah. we're going to look at how the past informs the present so that you can now in the present create a different future. And so I think when we think about, you know, the ways, whether it's a family member or a friend or somebody else, 
we may not forgive people, but we might have compassion for them. And I think that that opens up a different place inside of ourselves where we're not holding something where it feels so sharp. Mm-hmm. It still might be painful, but it won't feel as sharp. Yeah, I, I wonder if you'd agree with this. My my um, So far with my experience of therapy and coaching, because I typically tend to do those in tandem, is the the word I think of is like freedom or liberation. Like for me, it's is that what you would say it provides ultimately? Right. So so people would always tell people, and I think this is so dangerous. Like if you forgive them, it will set you free. And and it <laughs> yeah. doesn't because it's forced forgiveness. Forced forgiveness feels like another, you know, something that doesn't belong to you. It's like another chain. Right, right. So I would never want somebody to to have to force forgiveness. So I say, don't don't worry about forgiving somebody. Maybe you can understand more. Maybe you'll have compassion. I wouldn't force the compassion on them either. That will either come naturally or it won't. But I think that often when people let go of the piece of feeling like they're going to need to forgive someone, they're more open to understanding or being at least curious about why what happened happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that just understanding the why of it or knowing what the why is from the adult perspective versus the kid perspective. So as adults, we have agency. As kids, we didn't. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the difference is that as kids, we we could do nothing about the situation. But as adults, we have so many choices. And so many times we live in the jail of our childhoods, not realizing that we're actually free, mm-hmm. that we do have agency. One of the, my favorite moments in the book is that I write about is when my therapist said to me, mm-hmm. you know, you remind me of this cartoon. And it's of a prisoner shaking the bars, desperately trying to get out. But on the right and the left, it's open. No bars. So why do we not walk around those bars? What is the reason? Like, you know, if, if it's open on both sides, why do we not realize it's open? And then once we realize it's open, why are we so afraid of walking around those bars? And it's because with freedom comes responsibility. If we walk around those bars, we can't blame other people now for the choices that we make, for the life that we live. Now the responsibility is ours. And okay. some that could be very liberating, but it could also be frightening. Yeah, so... We're in a society today where everything is fast, everything's a quick fix, and therapy is not a quick fix, but it's worth it. And so how do you convey that to people, um, you know, who come to you and are looking for something to happen right away and aren't experiencing it? I had this experience where somebody contacted me right before the holidays, this was many years ago, and he said, my girlfriend is going to bail if I don't proposed to her on Valentine's Day. So you're thinking, okay, it's like the end of December. (laughs) He's got like six weeks. (laughs) Um, And so he said, you know, so I need to have an answer by Valentine's Day about whether or not to marry my girlfriend. Can you guarantee me that? (laughs) And I said, I don't know anything about you. I haven't met you. I don't know the situation. And I cannot guarantee that. (laughs) But what I can do is I can help you try to figure this out to help you understand why you've been so stuck with this. It might happen in a week. It might happen in four weeks. It might happen in six months. But this is going to be about your process and and, and how clear you can get on this. And it's mm-hmm. and it sounds like it's a really hard decision. So we need to understand why it's been such a hard decision for you. Mm-hmm. And he made the appointment. And then he called back before the appointment and he, and he canceled. And he said, I found a life coach who guaranteed that I will have the answer in four sessions. Oh, no. <laughs> Now, 
I find that kind of thing really dangerous. I don't know how someone could guarantee that someone that they've never met where they don't know the situation, they don't know why this person is having so much ambivalence about this. Do they have ambivalence in other parts of their life? Why with this particular person? What has happened in this relationship? Where does the ambivalence come from? All those things. And then to make a huge life decision. And for this poor other woman, like if, if the decision is, you know, what this person later thinks, oh, I should have married her, but I didn't do it. Or alternatively, I proposed and you know, six months later, oh no, this was not the right thing. And now think of how painful that's going to be as opposed to being honest with the girlfriend. She can make her choice. Like, I can't wait any longer for you. Okay. I'm really working on this. You know, I'm, I'm going to therapy now. I never went to therapy before. I should have gone earlier. I'm going now. I'm going to really work really hard on this to figure out sort of what I love you very much, but I'm, I don't know why I'm ambivalent about this. Mm -hmm. So so I think that, yes, a lot of people are wanting, you know, they don't treat it as this like experience. They treat it as I'm going to buy a product and the product is this. And it's going to deliver when I need it delivered. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I think that part of that comes from, again, this misconception that people think that therapy is like this years long thing and it does not need to be. You could come in and work on something and it takes you a month. It takes you six months, whatever it is. And that's what you need it. <laughs> I think readiness is really important to consider. So when people come to therapy, I don't just want to know, why are you here? I want to know why now? Why this day, this week, this month, did you pick up the phone and call me when maybe this has been going on for a while? <laughs> what was it about right now that made you want to do this? And I think that if you can help to connect with their readiness, then maybe they're not quite ready to change yet, but they're certainly ready to explore and be curious. Mm -hmm. That's great. That's the place you want to be in when you come to therapy. I'm curious. Mm -hmm. I want to see, I, I want to understand this more, you know, and sometimes it's, it's not something specific. It's kind of like something just feels off. I don't know what it is. Great. Come to therapy. Let's talk about that. Let's figure it out. A couple of years ago, you recorded with my colleague, Jesse Hempel, and it was at the start of the pandemic. You know, reflecting on that conversation, it was about the psychological immune system and, and taking care of our emotional health. Has anything changed about what advice you'd give to people today who are, you know, still dealing with uncertainty, even though COVID has maybe waned, it's now the economy and, you know, other illnesses that could be coming into play in our, in our society? Is there something different that you'd say about what we need now versus then? I don't think it's different. I think that we've learned a lot through this process. I think if you had said to people before COVID, hey, there's going to be a global pandemic. The world is going to shut down. You're going to be isolated for a very long time. Lots of people are going to get sick and die. You're going to see it all around you. It, it will touch you no matter what in some way. Um, jobs will be lost. There will be economic uncertainty. There will be, you know, there are these, all these reckonings that we have needed to have, whether that's, um, you know, systemic racism, um, white supremacy, um, the January 6th. I mean, if you said to people, this is what the world is going to be, I think a lot of people would have said, I can't get through that. Like, I won't be able to get through that. That sounds like too much. And yet we are here. We are getting through it despite our loss, our grief, our struggles, the toll that it has taken on every single one of us in all kinds of different ways. Hmm. And so I think that that's what I mean by the psychological immune system, that, that we think we can't survive certain things, and yet we do. 
And I think that's important to hold on to. And the question is, are we getting the support that we need? Are we talking about it? Are we connecting with people? Are we reaching out when we need help? Because what prevents people from, you might be here, but you're not present. You're not alive. You're not living. You're just kind of a shell of yourself versus the people who are managing to live despite that. Mm -hmm. Those are the people who have found a way to connect and reach out and do the hard thing of talking to other people and connecting with other people around these things that feel really hard to talk about. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I have to I have to then like tribute to my therapist who's who's been through a lot with me. She has been the person I've been able to share the most with and then work through so much of this with so that I'm better for the people around me. Um, so with that, Lori, I'd love to have you complete these three statements. The first is better humans are. Compassionate. Better work is. Enjoyable. And a better world has. Mm, tolerance. Beautiful. Thank you so much for what you're doing and loved having you here. Oh, thanks so much. Really appreciate <laughs> the conversation. That was Lori Gottlieb, author of the best-selling memoir, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, and the new Maybe You Should Talk to Someone workbook. She's also the writer of The Atlantic's Dear Therapist column. One big thing before we go. As a coach and someone who teaches mindfulness, I get asked in almost every session I've done, how do I get people in my life to do this stuff? And the annoying but honest answer is, you don't. What you do is you show up, you do it yourself, and you lead by example. And what happens is they see changes in you. They want to know what you're doing. And perhaps they're part of that nearly half of Americans who still feels they'll appear weak if they seek support. So give them a nudge. If you or someone you know, though, is experiencing a mental health crisis and need to talk to someone right away, call or text 988 in the United States. It'll connect you to a trained mental health professional. If today's episode would be helpful to someone you know, share it with them. And make sure to leave us a rating before you go. It helps other listeners like you find this show and grow with our community. And as usual, you can find me on LinkedIn writing about human potential and meaningful living. In the Arena is a production of LinkedIn News. The show is produced by Michelle O'Brien. Joe DiGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Iriando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is head of news production. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. And I'm Leah Smart. Thanks for coming on the journey with me. Welcome to season five, and I'll see you next week.